Well, I'm going to try and um, ooh, call you back, if that's at all possible. Apparently, there's a football match on tonight, so I don't know um, who's planning to go and... Is it 9 o'clock kickoff? It's 8 o'clock, it's eight o'clock kickoff. Ooh. That could be interesting for some. Who's going to win? Germany. Okay. Uh, it's great to be with you. As uh, Pam was saying, we've been here all day today. It's been a real joy. I bring you greetings from Guildford, Guildford Baptist Church, and I'm part of the pastoral team there at Guildford. And before that, we were at Hawley Baptist Church, which is right by Gatwick Airport. So it's that Hawley over in Surrey. So we've kind of moved from one side of Surrey to the other side of Surrey. So this really is scary new territory for us to come all the way down here. I'm originally actually from Suffolk. Any Suffolk-connected people? We had one this morning, one person who grew up around Ipswich. But uh, any, anybody been to Suffolk, near Suffolk? Okay, the worst guy. <laughs> Not at all, nothing. Um, I used to be a school teacher, a PE teacher, for six years, in a place called Mildenhall in, in Suffolk. And three children, who, Hannah's 21 and Cameron is 18, just finished his A-levels, and Lydia, who is 16. But that's enough of me. If you've got a Bible, Genesis, if you could turn to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 25. Genesis 25. And we're going to be picking the story up at verse 19. My Bible is entitled Jacob and Esau at the top. So Genesis chapter 25, beginning at verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. I always wondered what that must have looked like. So they named him and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. And so he was named Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, 
Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And that is why he is called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this Old Testament story, so much of it so distant from us and yet parts of it so immediate, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. Lord, we pray that we might receive your word. We would hear your voice and you would teach us what you want to teach us, stir us in the ways that you want to stir us up. But Father, may we hear the voice of your Spirit through your word, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. They were kind of the golden couple. Churches have golden couples. Communities have golden couples. There's always a golden couple. The villages have a golden couple. They just seem to come together and everything's right. And Isaac and Rebecca, the golden couple. The story up until their coming together was complicated. Isaac's birth, Abraham and Sarah, remember the story? Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children. They were barren and Abraham tried to manufacture that through Hagar, birth of Ishmael, but that wasn't, that wasn't the way that God wanted it to be done. And so they had to learn to trust. And after years of heartache, years of struggling, and so Isaac was born. Only some years later, for Abraham to be told by God, and now I want you to put him to death, to kill him, to sacrifice him on that mountain. The promised born, Abraham, from you will come a son, and through him the many nations will be blessed. And the son born to Abraham, Isaac, if he killed, that makes no sense. And just at the last minute, you don't have to kill him. And God has provided an alternative sacrifice so that he may not perish, that he may not die. And so Isaac lives, and in Abraham's dying years, he insists that Isaac marries well. That Isaac marries the perfect woman because he is the child of promise. He is the child of destiny, he is the child of hope. In him and in him alone is the future of the promise that God has given to Abraham. And Abraham insists that this is looked after well because he needs a good wife from good stock. You were told that as you were growing up. You need a good wife and you need her from good stock. Growing up in Suffolk, that's an interesting thing to be told. You need a good wife from good stock. So you have good, strong children. 
And so go and find a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant went off, and it's the chapter before. And she, he finds Rebecca, and he's led by God. And she goes out, if you remember, she goes out they're by the well and to water the camels and he says if, if the woman who comes out would you like some water and I'll water your camels too and that will be the sign and she's vigorous and healthy and she likes watering camels and she likes watering other people's camels and this is good stock for Isaac and so you are the one that God has led me to to marry my master's son to marry Isaac and so please come back with me please come back with me and I will introduce you. And she comes back willingly and gives herself to Isaac and they come together as husband and wife. And everything is spot on. All the right things have been done. All the prayers have been prayed. All the trusting in God has been trusted. All the obedience of God has been obeyed. What could possibly go wrong? We've done it by the book. And then we are told, Rebecca, of the golden couple is barren, is childless. It's, a, it's one of the hardest pastoral things, amongst many tough pastoral things, but to walk with a couple longing for a child. And it's just not happening. And they have the tests, and they do this, and they take advice from here, and sometimes nothing can be found, and so nothing happens. It's the longing of your heart, when you marry, the assumption is you, you will go on and have children. And so when it doesn't happen, it's, it's hard. It's very, very, very hard. And so Isaac and Rebecca commit themselves into God's hands and Isaac prays. Praise to God. But do you notice the clues of the time gap that was there. They marry when Isaac is 40. And how old is Isaac when the child is born? 20 years. He is 60. 20 years of longing and of hoping and of maybe, maybe this month, maybe next month. Month upon month, year upon year. And he prays. And she conceives, and almost from day one, before Jacob is even born, before Esau is even born, the story has begun. And it's more than just that kind of, ooh, little tickles that sometimes pregnant women get, and they can feel the baby starting to move. And, and then you get that point where the husband can put his hand on the woman's side and feel an elbow or what you think is an elbow or a foot or a head sliding round and oh and, and then there's an awkward bit and kicking in the night kept me awake all night but for Rebecca this was far worse these children are at conflict within me I don't know what is going on in there and the word is quite strong the word is quite violent they are crushing they are bashing in it is kicking off within me so much so that I wish almost wish that it had never happened in the first place if this is what pregnancy for me is going to mean then I'd rather it didn't happen it's crushing and bashing and before these children are even born, the die has been cast, the seeds have been sown, their destiny of conflict. 
the violence of competing with one another is already. And Rebecca prays. And God says, and remember, there are no scans and all that sort of thing. There are not just two babies in your womb. There are two peoples, two nations. Within you are two nations. Not just two children that you will bring up and teach the ways of the Lord and do all the things that you dream about and all the eyes that will do and bounce them around and play rough and tumble and see them off on their first day to school and hope they grow up and before they are even born Rebecca knows that within her are two nations two peoples that the destiny of the children that will be born to her is more than just the dreams of a husband and a wife, a mother and a father. That there is a destiny that is within her, that goes beyond her, and goes beyond her capacity to control it and to stop it. And so the two boys are born, and Esau comes out first, the hairy one, red and hairy. Lucky old him. And then, I don't know, clutching his heel. You remember that moment? Have you ever had a, a little baby? Have you ever introduced a little baby and it grabs your finger for the first time? It doesn't happen immediately, but you kind of, you, oh, you're awkward and you put those little mittens on babies because their nails are a little long so they don't scratch themselves and all kinds of things like that. And out of the womb, out of the starting block, he has got hold of this heel. He will not let him go. My destiny, I will get you because there are two nations within you. And Rebecca knows. And the older will serve the younger. The one who comes out first will be the slave of the one who comes out second. Already he's got hold of him. Already he is pulling him. Already he is grasping him. By the heel, whatever he can get hold of. And so they are born. Esau and Jacob. And then we're told a little bit about them. Two little vignettes, if you like. Esau likes sports. Rough and tumble, he loves it. Always up to mischief, always up to no good. Charging around here on his bike, always coming home with grazed knees. Takes up hunting, loves hunting. Killing animals, hunting animals, pursuing animals, bringing animals home, keeping animals, weird animals, any animals, he doesn't mind. Here, there, everywhere, Mr. Energy. Constantly eating, I'm thinking of my son now, cereal and crisps and just to keep him going, just to keep his energy levels up. This is Esau. He loves to be outside. His worst nightmare is to be inside, locked away. He wants to be outside, out there doing this, out there charging around, disappearing off for the day, up over the common, over the hills and far away. Whereas Jacob sits at home and plays on his PlayStation all day. 
He just loves being at home. He doesn't want to be out there running around. He's got those, whether it's low energy levels or he's just very content to dwell amongst the tents, to stay at home. No drive, no ambition, it would seem. No energy, no... And yet, as we're about to discover, all the drive and all the ambition and all the scheming. The moral of this story, never trust the ones who like to stay at home and play on the Playstations. They're the ones who are going to take over and rule the world. They have too much time to think and scheme and plan. And they are called Jacob. But you met. I've got nephews. I've got three wonderful nephews. And the two older ones are exactly like that. One could not be happier sat in front of a computer or on his Twitter feed or whatever he's doing. Loves it. Absolutely loves it. And he's on his PlayStation or on his games, his video games, and he loves the um, flying ones where you're a pilot and you fly around and land all over the place, etc., etc. His brother could not be more different. Playing cricket, playing football, running around, dragging his brother outside because he needs somebody to do the fielding. Oh, do I have to? Jacob. Jacob is loved by Rebekah. And Esau is loved by his father Isaac. And if that doesn't make you go, uh uh-uh, I don't know what will. It happens. It happens in families from time to time. Not in all families, but in some families you'll get one parent will favor one child over another. And it's they try not to make it obvious, but it is. And some of you will have been the victim of that. My sister was always younger, but more. No, that's not true. And perhaps, it doesn't say, but perhaps because Rebecca knew. Jacob the younger, she had been told, will one day rule over his older brother. And so her heart was turned towards him. Now, whether she'd ever told Isaac this or not, But Isaac's heart was turned towards Esau, and he loved him. Two very different personalities, two very different relationships with their children, with their parents. Just a recipe for conflict and disaster. And then one day, Esau's been out hunting all day used up his packed lunch, used up all his food. Maybe he's been away for a few days. It's been two or three days since he's had anything to eat. He's tried scrabbling around. It wasn't a great hunting trip. He wasn't able to kill very much this time. He's starving, absolutely starving. And she comes back into the, in amongst the tents. And well, what a surprise. Jacob's got the stove on. Oh, hello, my brother. I didn't know you were coming home so soon. Stir, stir, stir. Stew, stew, stew. Waft, waft, waft. Can you smell the stew? Because everything about the text says that Jacob had been scheming this, had been planning this, had been waiting for years and watching his brother toing and froing and backwards and forwards, 
waiting for a moment to strike, waiting to get him at his most vulnerable. And he had seen in the energy and passion of his brother and the charging here and the charging there and just the, that's when I can get him. That's when he's at his most vulnerable. That's when he's at his weakest. That's when. That'll be my best shot. I'll make a stew. He likes stew. Nice red stew with that meat he's so fond of. And I'll have it ready there waiting as he comes back. Brother Jacob, I'm starving. Give me something to eat. I'm starving. I've got some lovely stew. And with a cold, level gaze, Jacob fixes his eyes on Esau. And he says, give me your birthright first. What? I just want some stew. This is not a time to discuss the family inheritance. This is not a time to quibble over the will and all that kind of stuff. This is not a time to decide who's going to get which part of the our father's inheritance, all that kind of stuff. I just, I'm hungry. I just want some stew. You've got some stew? I want some stew. He says, you're not getting any stew until I've got your birthright. The birthright was the privilege of the eldest, of the firstborn. It determined their inheritance. Often it was a double portion to all the other siblings that were in the family. The firstborn in this culture had special privileges that were enshrined in the culture. And these were Esau's. And Jacob knew it. And when the time came, Esau would get at least twice. Before then, Esau was always privileged, Esau was always favored, Esau was the eldest, Esau always got the best of this, and Esau always got the best of that, and Jacob wasn't going to let this go on forever. Because somehow he saw the possibility in, in Esau that for the sake of, and some Bibles translate it, pottage, stew, He might just hand over his birthright because he is that easy to buy. And so for, the, for a bowl of stew, Esau says, oh, stuff you then. You can have my birthright. Swear it. I need you to swear on oath. Why? Because if anybody challenges this, it's legally binding. You swore on an oath that this is mine. I didn't wait till you were out in the field and nicked it from under your bed or something. This you have given me and you have sworn on oath. Swear it. Swear the oath. And the stew is yours. And he swears on oath. And the tragedy of it is, he doesn't even get the stew. In fact, it's translated, he just gets the lentils. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentils. Don't know who's a fan of lentils. I'm not a huge lentil fan. 
but there are some wonderful lentil dishes. Almost the meat has disappeared at this point. Because I don't know whether you know, there's a wordplay on red, red meat, red stew, Esau, red, hairy, Edom, which is the nation that he will become red. And the emptiness of what he now holds before him, having sold his birthright to his conniving and scheming younger brother. Because God has said that the younger is going to rule the older, that the older will become the slave of the younger. Nothing is happening here that God hasn't said is going to happen. This is what God told Rebecca all those years ago while those babies crashed about in her womb that there will come a time when the tables will be turned, when the order will be reversed, and the privileged older brother will become the servant of the junior younger brother. And that God has brought his purposes about in the, skin- in the scheming and the conniving and the deceitfulness and the planning of Jacob. You see, if God wants to reverse the social order and the social conventions of any society in any place, he is free to do that. And we should not presume just because we're the golden couple that we are going to have golden children and a golden life and a golden future. That we should not assume just because we in our culture we are the firstborn that God is bound by that and therefore he, we have a right to be blessed and we expect to be blessed. We expect to have the privileges of the firstborn because we are the firstborn and our culture endears itself to us and it privileges us because of these things and so must God. That actually in this passage we are told that God is no slave to the social conventions of any society, let alone the the beginnings of Israel itself. That if God wants to turn things up on its head and that the weak become strong and the poor become rich and the widow and the alien and the orphan are invited into the heart of the life of the people, that the meek will be blessed and the poor in spirit will be blessed and those who mourn and those who are despised will find themselves in the heart of the purposes of God. Well, he, he will do that God is free to invert whatever he likes, to change whatever order and expectations we may have about our life and about our entitlement and a world obsessed with our rights. I have a right to. I used to teach secondary school. Did I ever hear, sir, that's not fair. I have a right to. Because, as my theology tutor said to me all those years ago in a theology class, 
Of all the people on earth, we are the only ones who know that we have no rights to anything except hell itself. An eternal separation from God, that is the only thing we have a right to. Everything else is grace. Everything else is gift. Everything else is in the hands of the goodness and the kindness and the generosity of God. And that is why in our lives, in the smallest things and in the biggest things, in the great and the little, we can be thankful always because God has much blessed us. Now, we need to be careful. We need to be careful that therefore it is not necessarily our job to invert whatever social convention we choose to invert and persecute whoever we feel we need to persecute for the sake of making some kind of social statement. But nevertheless, we should never live without the possibility, without the expectation that the least expected within whatever community or society we are part of may be raised up by God and called to serve and to lead and to become the child of promise. Nor must we think that somehow our scheming and our illegitimate means and our Jacob-like behavior is acceptable and okay. That Jacob is not now to become a model disciple for us of how you win over somebody else's birthright. That these things are still unacceptable for the people of God. But nor should we be surprised And God, in the corruption and the mess of human life, still shines forth and brings about His promises and His purposes. That He will still use whomever He chooses to use and whatever means they think that they are in control with. But God remains in control. And God will bring about all that God chooses to bring about. And so in this story, there is a tension between what we might call free will and God's destiny for us. It's the great question. Our freedom to choose. And yet God has called us and watches over us and guards and guides our lives in some ways. And within this story, you have Jacob and Esau and no hint of God in their circumstances, conniving and scheming and hunting and fishing and staying at home and planning and thinking they are in control. Their freedom, their freedom to choose, their free will. Feels good, do it. I can choose whatever I want to do. I am an autonomous being. Autonomous, self-governing. That's where that comes from. Autonomos. Nomos, the Greek word for law. Self-law. Me, law, I'm in charge. I'm in control. You can't tell me what to do. And yet every single one of us, if we're honest, knows that there are forces outside of our control that continue to control us. That there is no such thing as pure free will. 
the pure freedom to choose. So, for example, if I was to tell who's going to join me, put my phone down for three days and not look at it. That has a power and a force over me and some of you. No texting, no Facebooking, no Twittering. And what are the other ones? Snapchat. Who's on Snapchat? See, I know this stuff. I'm not as old as I look. Don't watch the television for a week. Don't watch your favorite program. Don't. And you suddenly realize that there are forces that are unseen that shape and govern our lives and that there is an unseen gracious and benevolent force. There is the presence of God who in the freedom of my choices to leave my phone or to pick my phone up, to do this or not to do this, to sin or not to sin, that there, are, there is something still that constrains me. There are choices for the children of God that are no longer open to us, even in the choices that we make. Because we are destined by God to be the people of God, the community of promise, the, peop- the hope of the world. And there is a sense, therefore, so far and no further, that in the mess, Jacob and Esau, two peoples in conflict, and yet one of them becomes Israel, the people of God. And from Israel one day will come Jesus, the Messiah. And the mess of the story of Israel Kings who murder, kingdoms that split, idols that are worshipped, sins that are committed, that make our hair stand on end and our toes curl, still give birth to the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world, that somehow God is telling us again that he is still in control no matter how messy it seems and how much you thought it would be so different and how unfair this is and how irresponsible she was. Still God. Still God is in control. And through the people of God, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Amen. Amen. Where's Ellie gone? I'm going to hand back to Ellie. I'm also going to take my phone back.